Welcome to the Raven Precision Podcast. In this episode, we cover the RS1 version 1.1 update uh, and everything that's involved with it. I'm joined by Matt Rust and Luke Puckett, two of our design engineers that worked on RS1, and Nick Peterson, one of our technical service specialists. If you're unfamiliar with what RS1 is, it's our new steering system. Uh, It's actually a GPS receiver, an auto steering system, and a slingshot modem all rolled into one package. But the slingshot part of it is actually optional. Uh, It's either going to have an internal modem, or it's not. We go over some of the new machine profiles that were added, uh, especially as it relates to the hydraulic drive unit, uh, which if you're unfamiliar with that, it's the component that's needed to drive extra valves that aren't ISO-steer ready. So we're looking at the Sauer Danfoss valve, um, the Case Eaton valve, uh, and, and things along those lines. We talk about the enhancements to LastPass steering performance. There's actually going to be a new setting called LastPass sensitivity. There's a new visual that was added during the calibration process uh, for 3D calibration to kind of help better uh, get you lined up whenever you're doing the turnaround for the 3D calibration. Um, there's going to be RTKL, uh, which is going to be a kind of like a GS type fallback for when RTK will drop out if you have bad cell coverage or anything like that. Also with 1.1, we added the ability to have multiple machine profiles. So the RS1 is actually pretty easy to move back and forth between machines, especially with the specialized brackets that go on top of the cab. You can just pop that off of one machine and take it to the other machine and then you can calibrate it. And then when you go back and forth between different machines, you can just go in and change that profile so you don't need to recalibrate. And finally, probably one of the biggest parts of this 1.1 update, there's actually an update to the GPS receiver that's inside RS1, and it's going to be needed for GS, meaning some of the specifics with satellite GS changed just enough to where we need to adapt to how that GS signal is being delivered. So with all that said, I think we'll just jump into the conversation I had with Matt, Luke, and Nick. Are you looking at me? You're the one that can start. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding, guys. No, we'll just jump into it. So uh, wherever you feel we want to start through uh, this list. So we'll start with machines added. Yep. Okay. So for this uh, spring release, we've added several different machines for RS1 and the HDU platform. Uh, focused on several case machines and focused on uh, Apache, uh, Miller, New Holland sprayers, front boom sprayers, and... Uh, couple of machines are in the, the beta stage right now, the GVM Prowler and the RBR Vector. Um, case machines really focused on Patriot, both steer-ready and non-steer-ready 3000 and 4000 series sprayers, as well as the Titan 3000 4000 series floaters, as well as the brand new Triton that was just released here within the mm-hmm. last year. So. Okay. Yeah, HDU was a, a major uh, milestone step for us in the RS1 release. Um, our released in October, allowed us to support uh, the majority of the ISO CAN valve machines, such as Rogators, uh, New Holland, New, newer New Holland sprayers, uh, Terrigators, um, what are some other John Deere machines, John Deere machines um, 
tractors as well. Case Tigers, and then all of our uh, tractor support for with the MD. So the machines that required a Raven hydraulic valve or had a, a, a PWM valve on the machine, like the Case Eaton machines, we needed a HDU to be able to support driving that hydraulically, that hydraulic mm-hmm. system. So we were able to release that this spring on the machines that, that Luke had mentioned. Uh, in addition, we added a couple more ISOCAN valve machines, the GVM Prowler, um, that's just coming out as well as the brand new RBR vector machine, VT four wheel steer. Uh, some of the other features that came along for the ride with this spring, uh, we did update the tune set for the C model rogators. So anybody who's got one of those machines would be advised to update software to one, one Oh, one RS one software as we've improved the performance, um, on that platform, what's we, uh, what? If I jump in here, what? So, what exactly did get improved? I've seen some people like and just internally kind of ask, you know, because as we have the notes, it's just a bullet point. Like, what exactly did we tweak? One, you know, of, the, just, one of the big things there was valve it. calibration. So, okay. um, you can go through the the AGCO display and actually calibrate your valve and calibrate your wheel angle sensor. So that's that's something that makes a huge impact on steering performance. Mm-hmm. And so that's something we actually added to the user manual to make sure they're aware of it. Go in there, tune both the wheel angle sensor, make sure that's set accurately, and then go through a valve calibration. So two things that are very critical to steering performance that, that people might not know about. Okay. The other thing, uh, we didn't get as much time as we would have liked um, to tune in the system prior to releasing last fall. Oh, okay. And so we did make it a point to um, – it, it wasn't in the, the plans to get mm-hmm. a machine in this this winter – and to you know do some dedicated focused time on that machine, and uh, we were able to do that. We got a machine at the farm. Nice. Actually, we got a couple of machines at the farm, and mm-hmm. we were able to validate that. So, say, so, Luke, how does that affect with the actual machine's valve calibration for the EDT? Do we still recommend doing that first? The valve calibration, oh. yeah, absolutely. So, go through the valve calibration <clears throat> upon initial setup of the RS1 system. So, going through the AGCO display, calibrating the valve and wheel angle sensor, and then you go and calibrate the RS1 system. So, definitely do that first. Yeah. Yep. If you do it the opposite way, uh, it will kind of screw up the RS1 calibration. So, you'll have to, you'll always want to do the RS1 calibration second. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, another uh, thing that we were able, weren't able to get um, complete by the time we released last fall was the ability to. Pre- to steer really well on last pass. Um, and we were aware of that, and we, we had dedicated effort for the, over the winter to improve our last pass steering performance. Um, we uh, actually changed part of our algorithm to improve that performance, and we're really happy with what we came up with. We were able to test that actually this winter down in Australia. Um, my, myself and a couple of the guys went down there for – for two weeks, we were able to get on three different uh, case sprayer machines, uh, 4440s machines, and actually four different ones, and uh, had very good results and good feedback on the performance enhancements for last pass steering. So we actually added a parameter uh, to the to the main RS1 page in response uh, to to help aid this to the end user. So we've never really had a, a you know a last pass sensitivity parameter before, so this is mm-hmm. something new. It allows the end user to um, kind of tune for the curve, how aggressively their machine is steering to the curve. So if they were, uh, if they feel like they're kind of hanging to the outside of a curve, they can uh, turn that number up, and it'll kind of want to cheat the corner. Because performance is a little lazy at that point, right? 
So if you're handing yep. it outside, mm-hmm. yep, a little lazy. So you need to kind of cheat. Yep. The machine's maybe uh, hydraulically a little bit too slow to steer the curve that you're on, so you kind of got to cut the corner. So okay. you can turn the number up, and if you are um, steering too far to the inside, you can turn that number back down, and it'll kind of steer closer to where you're at. How's that so, effect for when they're speed dependent? Say they're in the field doing eight miles an hour for one setting, and then say later they're coming back on the same style curve, and they're maybe doing fourteen. Is that mm. going to need to adjust that number up or down, or should it match for both speeds? Maybe. So the algorithm is uh, speed compensated, uh, so okay. it should have that uh, improve that uh, compensation built into the algorithm. And when we're tuning for this this sensitivity, we are tuning at multiple speeds and finding kind of the best fit across the speed range as well. So okay. the value in there should work well across. We we test from you know mm-hmm. five miles an hour up to fifteen twenty miles an hour, and so it should work yeah. well across a wide range of speeds. Our performance metrics yes, that's right. what we target five ten and fifteen. Yep. And if and since that's going to be on the home screen, right? Yep. You're saying yeah. I mean that's if you have your object pool widget or uh, you know the interactive VT widget or UT. As ISO keeps like to change everything, right? You know that's uh, something you can just bump up and down a little bit. Uh, is that those those can be adjusted while you're engaged? Yeah, correct? absolutely. Okay, yep. just double checking. Yeah, so if you're, if you're constantly going at a certain speed, you know what speed you're going at. It can definitely be fine tuned in probably a little bit, but it should work yeah. well across a okay. variety of speed ranges. Yeah. Uh, one thing we should also mention that is last pass sensitivity and adaptive curve sensitivity. So pivots are different. Pivots, it's more like steering a, a straight AB line, and so that mm. that last pass sensitivity is only for adaptive curves and last pass sensitivity it will not oh, okay. affect pivot performance so. yeah that was intentional that we labeled it last pass sensitivity mm-hmm. as opposed to curve sensitivity because right. there was some confusion uh, especially even internally whenever we'd say we don't uh we don't support curves this spring yeah. the very first question people would ask is well what about pivots you don't mm-hmm. you can't steer a pivot well yes we can steer a pivot we just don't steer adaptive curves so to us, the most right. logical thing okay. for an adaptive curve was last pass. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So hopefully that gets communicated uh, and is easily understood that that's, that's what we were intending by, by that label. I will try my best. <laughs> <laughs> um, next thing, Luke can probably talk about the 3D Cal enhancements. Yeah, so 3D Cal prior to the software release was always a little tricky. You, you would go out there in the field and – You'd really have to flag your tires and make sure you're you're starting and stopping at the same point, and that right. was always difficult to do, especially especially out in the middle of a field where you're not able to flag your tires. It was difficult, and so uh, a good good improvement to this software is now in the software you have a starting point that's flagged, and you have a triangle that's set in the object pool, and then you also have a guidance line that's set through that triangle. And so when you hit calibrate, you start the calibration sequence. A triangle is placed <clears throat> where your machine started. Mm-hmm. You then go, turn your machine around 180 degrees, and you have a guidance line in order to line you up on that triangle. And so it's very easy to get your machine lined up straight as you're going. You then you have a triangle that is placed as a flag to where you started, and then you have a triangle that maps your machine movement. And then okay. basically you just overlap one triangle on top of the other triangle, and that is your calibration procedure. And then once you get the triangles overlapping each other hit the calibrate again and calibration's done so it's very easy to line your machine up now there's there's no guesswork in it you right. have a, basically a straight a b line in order to follow in order to to line up your machine and a whole lot easier i know before you basically had to have some sort of reference point you know a, a sidewalk you had to line up with or a piece of a slab of concrete but now you can do three cal in the middle of the field and it's it's slick i'm really disappointed you guys didn't use my light bulb <laughs> <laughs> Broke my heart a little Everything bit. Everything back to your PowerPoint, right? Your YouTube video. <laughs> yeah, that's it was good. Right. It was good. That's yep. right. 
So how's that match for the machine? Is it going to come out closer? They're on their same wheel tracks. Say they had a reference, you know, soft dirt in the field that they could see their previous wheel tracks. Are they going to line up closer? Is it more of match it on the screen versus reality on the? It matches pretty tight to the field, I'd say. Yeah. We actually, um, because of the improved ability to make it obvious where you're steering to, uh, we actually made it more stringent than it previously was, even in smart tracks, relative to smart tracks. Um, The result of that is you just get a better 3D cal, so the heading's better aligned and the rear axle's better aligned, so the 3D cal performance, from what we've seen, is... Is really good pass to pass performance. Yeah, one of the issues with the smart tracks calibration is you had a, a positive and a negative number for left right. You never really knew which side of you know where mm-hmm. you left of the line, right of the line. You didn't really know. Is left negative. Or yeah, exactly. Right. Now there's arrows directing you. So there's an arrow directing you forward if you need to go forward to to match up your two triangles, or there's an arrow to the left or right depending on whether right. you need to steer left or right. So very intuitive, very easy to use. That's one thing I noticed too. As some of the smart tracks machines are getting older, if they were marked their position and they got exactly on there their left right value might have been a negative 10 which wouldn't allow the calibration to finish and they were not understanding why which they could kind of cheat a little bit but see it looks like we're going to get that fixed for with rs1 that should make things a lot easier absolutely yeah i think uh i'm expecting there to be really positive feedback on this but i guess we'll see well yeah just the ability to add anything visual in real time yeah is huge it's huge yep Takes all the guesswork out of it. Right, exactly. Really nice. Yeah. Yep. Save a frustrating service call. And... Absolutely. I agree. And I think the result, I'm actually happy that we were able to, able to make the calibration more stringent. Um, we actually did some testing with the old parameters against the new parameters, requirements of how tightly you needed to be. And um, it, was, it was, I don't know if significant might be a stretch, but it was noticeably different pass to pass performance. Um, if you were at the extreme side of passing with the old calibration uh, limits versus the new calibration limits. So not only do we make it easier, but I think the general message is the customer gets better performance from the system. Yeah. So Yeah. On a side note, Matt, why is 3D Cal so important? Because I know it's an extra step in calibration. People don't necessarily like to do it, but it does impact performance, right? Yep. So um, it's not maybe real direct how it improves performance, but um, – if you're on if you're, if you're on really flat ground, the pass to pass performance is even still affected because if uh, if you did not do a 3D cal, we would assume that uh, you were to the left of the line, and when you turn back around, you'd be to the left of the line, which would result in uh, having a short swath, and then you turn back around to your right on the next swath, and you'd be long, short, long, short, long, short. So even on a flat field, um, the 3D cal is important. It's something you have to do. And uh, it's especially critical, obviously, if you're on hills. And then for anybody who's paid for RTK, if you really want to get that RTK level pass-to-pass performance, you're only going to achieve that with, you know, a 3D compensation. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, because, like, <clears throat> once you start tilting, that's going to throw you way off. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Way off your gain sign. So, yeah. I mean, it takes an extra 45 seconds. It's it's a whole lot easier now to do, and you can get a very good calibration. So it's definitely definitely worth the 45 seconds it takes. Now. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yep. Mm-hmm. Another thing that we were not able to um, make into the initial release of RS1 last fall was language support. Um, so now we've added the following languages to the RS1 object pool, which are German, Spanish, French, Dutch, Portuguese, and uh, Russian. 
So we're hoping for our international customers that'll be a a nice enhancement to their ability to use the system. Right. Um, along with the added languages to the object pool, we um, updated our software to be able to make sure that the object pools or the UT of the system, RS1's UT, stays online better. Um, have had some initial feedback from customers that they've seen the uh, object pools go offline occasionally, and that was a, a directed focus over mm-hmm. the last um, five months to improve the ability for the UT to stay online for our RS1's object pool. A uh, few other things that we added in. Um, RTKL, for those of you that are not familiar yet with that term, which it's not fully released, so I'm guessing a lot of you are not. RTKL is an enhancement to RTK uh, in the sense that if you've got um, your RTK corrections being streamed via cellular, which is most likely the case, Mm -hmm. uh, or even if it's via radio, it doesn't really matter, and there's a dropout in the correction stream because you've got loss of signal for whatever reason, you um, can automatically fall fall back to an L-band correction, which is for us is GS, for up to 20 minutes. So this is a, a subscription you'd paid for. Uh, cheaper than GS. Uh, cheaper than a full GS subscription because you can only use it when you drop out of RTK. But it uh, gives you the ability to have uh, basically continuous RTK level corrections. Uh, the correction um, in the way that we've set it up, it does not jump. Uh, the position doesn't jump when it loses RTK to GS. There's a s- real smooth transition over and... Uh, when you get the RTK correction back, it's a real smooth transition back. So the benefit to you is the pass-to-pass performance. You, you won't be able to perceive the that transition that's happening. So if you're in a spot nice. with really, really hard or poor cellular coverage, this could be a really good thing. Yes. Um, and you want that RTK level correction. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Does yeah. that require a GS unlock on the RS1? So uh, for those that aren't aware of this, if you have already unlocked your receiver for RTK, you automatically get a GS unlock, mm-hmm. so there's not a you don't you don't unlock both. Um, I guess if you bought the GS unlock first and then you bought a RTK unlock, but if you initially purchased an RTK unlock, you're automatically unlocked for GS, and so then you just need to buy a uh, the RTK uh, RTKL subscription from Raven. So really, really handy there. You go right mm-hmm. from RTK level. If you do happen to have a dropout, seamlessly goes to GS and then back to RTK once it comes back in, right? So. Yep. And from the testing that we've done uh, to date, uh, that correction level maintains, if maybe not quite RTK, but really close. I mean, you're mm-hmm. just a few inches of pass to pass error. Yeah. On that awesome. transition. Nice. So. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, one additional enhancement that we added uh, is the ability to store calibration profiles. We took an attempt to do this back in Smart Tracks days, um, and we didn't have maybe uh, the full capabilities to make this easily used by a customer. Um, however, with RS1 being kind of more of a, a mobile device that you could actually move between machines, we wanted to offer that enhancement to be able to uh, store calibration profiles. So let's say you've got a Terragator and a Rogator um, machine on your in your facility and you wanted to switch back and forth between the two calibrate on the first one it'll automatically label that as the rogator say that was the first one 
Then you move over, over to the second machine and you calibrate that one as a tear gator. It'll label that one as a tear gator. You come back over to the to the row gator with it. Um, through the object pool, you'll just select that row gator profile. After you select it, it'll power cycle itself, come back online, and away you go. There's no, you don't have to recalibrate uh, a second time on that row gator. Mm-hmm. It'll s- store that, save that, and you can continue to switch back and forth. Mm-hmm. And Matt, in your example, you use two ISO security machines, but this would work with an HDU as well. Yeah, you can you can have a case machine, you can have a Terragator row gear, and just seamlessly switch between the, the the machines. And you can have up to five profiles, correct? Yep, that's right. Excellent. And uh, so for the for the steer ready machines, when you're picking, I suppose it'd be the same thing if you were using an HDU or say, and maybe an MDU. Like if you're picking that profile, it would still pick that machine. But say you picked a generic profile, you can rename. Can you rename these? You can't Maybe like after, after the yeah, facts, yep. it would be after so the facts. So after the fact, the fact. We, um, we, in general, we didn't see this as being a, a hugely used feature. Um, so we basically automatically named the profile right. the first time you calibrate through it. Um, but we figured if a guy was actually calibrating a second one and wanted to differentiate the two, let's say he right. actually had two rogators mm-hmm. um, and wanted to differentiate the two, yeah, after the fact, yeah. he could re- rename the machine. Or if it's already got one on there that um, it recognizes as a, it recognizes it has two names that are the same. It'll ask you to change the name of it. Oh, okay. Upon All right. So. Yeah, and it's the majority of the time it would just be uh, the easiest and most widely used to have um, the the profile as the name. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. One thing I would like to, to <clears throat> talk about after you know a little bit of experience in the field going to customers is uh, the auto calibration routine. That's been pretty big this spring. It's been really, really wet in the areas that we've traveled to. Couldn't get out in the field to perform a calibration, so it was great. You perform the install, um, help the dealers through that, and then you go right in the yard there, perform that auto calibration, and the the space that's needed is very limited. And so it's a quick process, and within you know, five minutes, you're up and running, and, and you know whether the machine was, was working correctly and everything mm-hmm. was installed correctly. So auto calibration is a huge benefit. Um, we definitely recommend that guys do a, a full hydraulic calibration, but for, for testing, and we've seen good performance with AutoCal as well. So um, it's it's encouraging to go out there and just, you know, within five minutes, yep, everything's, you do a system check, everything's performing well, right. and away you're up and running. So. And you're talking about the difference between AutoCal and just the quick cal. Yes, right? correct. Yeah, a full hydraulic calibration and just using a quick cal. So. Yep. Yeah, so one note on quick cal with an HDU, since Luke brought that up, kind of reminded me. Um, with an MDU, uh, we always know that left is left. Right. And with an ISO CAN valve, we always know that left is left. With an HDU, it's possible that the system could either be electrically or hydraulically plumbed backwards. Mm. Um, so even when you do pick a, uh, quick cal, we do require one just very, very quick step that occurs and we pulse the hydraulics for less than a second, I think. Yeah. And Wheel movement's barely noticeable there yep. at all. And uh, we just make sure that left is left or left is right. We automatically flip the hydraulic corrections for you at that time. Okay. Um, just for the customer be, to be aware that it is flipped, um, there is a setting that shows that it was is flipped, and so you can flip it back and forth within the object pool. But from all the testing we've done to date, you have there's no reason to actually go and check that or modify that. It it just works. Correct. Yeah. As the way it should. Nice. So. 
Insulations are pretty intuitive for left, right, but it happens. Sometimes you swap a hydraulic hose, but this is just kind of nice. It, it fixes it for you. You don't have to go and fix anything in the, the hydraulic insulation. Which is yeah, nice. and the major concern is we don't want the first time you engage the machine for it to steer hard away from the line. So right, right. That's the primary reason for that, but mm-hmm. there is one minor added step um, if you have an HDU system. Mm-hmm. Since we're on HDU, I was going to ask earlier, but say a customer has a existing older Raven hydraulic system, which valves are we specifically going to support then? Are we going to support all the previous Raven valves, or are we just touching on the the newer Dan Foss valve? Right now we have support for the analog sour valve, which is one of our primary aftermarket valves. Mm-hmm. We also have support for case machines, so the Eaton Steerity valve uh, that, that come on Steerity case machines. Uh, working to incorporate more valve types at this point, but those are the two that we focused on right now. We will be supporting SPG's PWM valve. Um, that'll be coming here in, at least for beta support in the next few months. But Raven Europe. Um, <laughs> see, see Luke mouth. Man, he's <laughs> shooting lasers at you right now. Yeah, Luke's, Luke's <laughs> hammering away at me. The Raven Europe PWM valve. There we go, yeah. yeah. So we, um, we support all the valve types that we have machine-specific tune sets for right now. Yep. And then Okay. I think maybe specifically you're asking about uh, the Hydroforce valve and the command valve. Yeah, those are some currently. Still there's popular no ones. Um, there's no scheduled development for those machines. Um, if any, you know, customers are listening to this, you know, have a major need for that, that would be good feedback uh, to us to maybe redirect our uh, development plans to make right. sure we include something. Yeah, because right now we have the the valve types that are currently on machines that we know will be going forward with those, and so that's what the primary development's been focused yep. on. And we've, uh, just in general, there's been a big push um, to get more consistency in the products day-to-day. Um, so some of the things that we did to specifically improve that um, with RS1 across the board was to, number one, we have embedded into the system a, a high-quality GPS receiver. So we know we're getting good GPS, or as, as good a GPS as we can get on any system at Raven all the time. Uh, number two, we drastically improve the quality of the inertial sensors so those are much better over temperature those are much better over vibration and those are much better uh day-to-day because we factory calibrate them to less than less than a percent of air Uh, so we do a full 3d tilt uh, calibration in the factory and then we take that calibrated those calibrated numbers and rerun them against the test a second time and we calculate the error the second time through, and that needs to be less than a 1% error across all mm. all rotations, all dimensions. Um, the, the next thing was valve types. We we specifically want to make sure we're using high-quality valves for steering performance. Um, we believe that Sour Valve is a very high-quality valve. We believe Eaton valves are, have given us high quality as well. Mm. And so at this point, that's really our target. We don't want to take on any more risk than is necessary to to support um, valves that we don't consider as high quality. So, well, right, you hook RS one and an HDU up to you know a lower quality valve. Uh, it's not going to like make it outdrive what it would be capable of. Right, just same thing. Like we've always talked, we've always and maybe it does today, today, but it doesn't tomorrow. And that was oh you know, okay, yeah. you know that was one of the concerns that we had. So maybe that valve doesn't handle temperature very well. Yeah. Oh um, right. So okay. today it works great. Next day it doesn't work very well. And we just you know we we had an intentional effort 
uh, with RS1 that we did not want that kind of feedback. Well, works for three days and then doesn't work again, and then I calibrate it and it works for three days. And so that was part of that is valve selection for us. And we've really hammered on these valve types and really thoroughly tested these valve types. And so we want to make sure that in any any valve that we're paired with, we have fully fully vetted and fully tested. So. Yep, I think just eating alone, we've probably been on 10 to 12 machines this winter. Yeah, yeah. So absolutely. we've been very aggressively testing on on the Eaton valve, similar scenario with the Sour valve. And we've seen similar results across all the Eaton valves we've been on, right? So we're yep. seeing consistent performance with those valve types. And, like and then said, consistent against a Sour valve as well yes, on the same yes. machines. Absolutely. We like that. And I think you guys will like that too. Consistency is key. Yeah. Sounds huge. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, was there anything else you think that uh, we kind of want to get into, Nick? Anything uh, you think a customer should know uh, maybe to keep? Because you've, you've, uh, you've been using this. Like you were involved in a lot of the testing. I've done right? some of the original beta testing with the unit. and Maybe a little quick mm-hmm. Q&A and some issues that you've have come up Mm. a lot of the initial issues have been pretty much addressed with the release software i haven't seen missed any issues since the release i haven't run it much since it's the initial software release so just just a plug for the software release there are a lot of improvements like we discussed here it's Mm -hmm. definitely worthwhile to update software sometimes you say hey i have a system that's up it's functioning it's working do i really want to update software this is right. one software version you definitely want to update to. The, the features and benefits are, are huge for this software. We'll see. I'm right. looking forward to trying out the LastPass sensitivity. I think that's going to be a, a big player that's huge. going yep. forward. Yep. Right. And now for those that have been using this for the past year, right, probably, uh, we've had this whole year to take a lot of the feedback from the field, a lot of, uh, and just kind of picking up some of the things that we wanted to get in in time. Uh, but just didn't really have a chance to do so. Uh, so, yeah, like anything that we've talked about, you you would need to update. And then actually, so <clears throat> to jump into that, uh, maybe just quick, let's just hit on the, the ways to update. So if we're using cellular or if we're, uh, you know, pr- programming through the Viper 4. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, absolutely. So a couple of different ways you can program it just like any other ISO node. You download, <clears throat> excuse me, the RSV file. RSU? RVU. RVU, there we go, RVU file. That's why he's in service, he knows this stuff. That's right, to the thumb drive, uh, to the main directory there, load it onto the Viper 4, and then it's an update like any other CAN valve or CAN node. One thing we should note, you do have to have RS1 connected via Wi-Fi to the Viper 4 in order for the update to take place. So the update is actually not happening over CAN. It's happening over Wi-Fi, so it's an extremely quick update. Mm -hmm. It it should be noted that the 1.1 update is a little bit longer because there is a a GPS receiver update to support RTKL. And so the update update time is about 15 minutes, we say, for this this update. Typically, it's a lot shorter. That's about three to five minutes. Totally forgot that one. That's actually a pretty major one um, that Luke just reminded me of. So anybody that's using uh, L-band corrections after, I believe, March 31st, the frequency of L-band will be changing. So what does that mean to you? GS customers um, will no longer with old software, so one old release of RS1, will not be able to be tracking an L-band signal or GS correction uh, via that software version. So when you update software to 1.1, 
as Luke mentioned, the GPS software automatically gets updated. Uh, as part of that GPS software update, the uh, GPS receiver actually tracks the new frequency and everything should work. So mm. um, for anybody that's using uh, GS corrections, this will be a really a mandatory update. And then obviously, like Luke had said, RTKL support as well will require the new software. Mm-hmm. One thing I've seen so far in service too is guys trying to do the update, they either don't have a Wi-Fi antenna. That's definitely mm-hmm. a key. It'll it'll still connect without the antenna, but it won't be able to transfer that large of a file. So always make sure you got an antenna on there. If you don't, make sure you get one on there and it should be fine. Yep, so that's one way, updating via the, the USB thumb drive. Another way is to update via the object pool. If you have cellular enabled on your RS1 unit, you can go into the slingshot object pool there, hit field updates, update to the latest software, and, and you're off and going there. So those are probably the two easiest ways to update. Right. Any other issues we've encountered? Kind of came up with one this this week. Um, if you do purchase the slingshot portion portion of RS1 um, and you do get your own data plan, you'll need to make sure you um, talk to Verizon and give them your IMEI and SIM card number um, and make sure they actually activate that data plan for you. Um, ran into a customer who didn't realize that that was the process for getting it updated is that he needed to actually talk to Verizon and, and do that. So just a mm. and, and to go the, to go back to the current field hub for Slingshot, the update or the, the activation process is very similar. Yeah, right? it should be the same. So right. there's a SIM card and IMEI number with the field hub. Um, those same two things need to be, provi- need to be provided to your um, cellular provider. Um, in the case of RS1, there's only one cellular provider. It has to be Verizon. There's no other option. So with Verizon, when you're talking to them, make sure you get that information to them that they've actually activated the data plan. That information, too, is available right through the Slingshot object pool. Under the for cellular information, you can get that right off, off the object pool. Yep. One other thing to note there is there is an external cellular antenna for RS1 that does need to be connected in order to get cellular service so into RS1. So. Oh, right, because that's the primary. The primary is the external. That's antenna. correct, yep, yep. yep. Any other uh, things you guys were thinking of? I think we're excited for the spring. I mean, we've seen re- very good performance with RS1 on ISO stereo machines. The HDU has been very promising, seen excellent line acquire, excellent online performance. So um, adding curves into the arsenal is just is just one more thing, and it's exciting right. to see the performance. Yeah, and we've we've uh, we've kind of had our own curve metrics in the past that we've used with SmartTrex, and to say the least, we've kind of wrapped those metrics pretty pretty much. Uh, two or three times tighter uh, and still meeting them uh, mm-hmm. with RS1, so we're pretty excited about that. Yeah, yeah. Huge, huge performance that we're seeing with Curves. It's exciting to see. Maybe last would just be a plug for some some net, for some future features that are um, kind of in scope. Um, probably the major ones would be that we're, we are starting development on tractor support, so four-wheel drives for... Uh, Case and versatile machines, yep. Yep. Um, and then for both front street tractors and four-wheel drives, actually, for those. Correct, yep. Yep. Case yep. Versatile there. In New Holland. So um, that'll be in the works. We don't exactly know when the release will be, but we're targeting this fall. Um, in addition, for our international customers, we are hoping things will go well with a 3G modem that we're – 3G, 2G modem that we're working on and doing testing with. Mm. So uh, assuming things go well, we're targeting a fall release for supporting that so that uh, we can offer that internal modem to um, really all of our customers at that point, not just the ones in the U.S. 
and uh, there's a few more features I can't think of off the top of my head, but those are probably the major ones. ISO guidance lines? So that's something that we're evaluating is uh, ISO guidance lines. Um, what does that mean? That is the ability to uh, steer with RS1 without having to have a ROS or CR- CR7 type display. At this point, um, we're not exactly sure when we're releasing that. We're still evaluating uh, mm-hmm. the maybe they say the customer base that needs that. And uh, so if, if you're one of those guys that would like that, um, an example of that guy would be someone who's got a John Deere display um, and he doesn't want to switch his display, but he still would like to use Raven product control on his system. And he would would have you know minimal concerns using Raven steering as well um, to keep those two things with the same uh, supplier on the same field computer, right? Yep. So if he if if that's if that's you and you know you can sell a lot of those, let us know. Um, we we can target that need as well. So good thing about RS one. I mean, it's it's versatile. It, uh, development is continually happening, and uh, it's exciting to right. see new features that are coming to fruition. And the, probably the last thing I think that I'll leave with is uh, it's it's pro- from from my from my uh, um, just uses with it. It's been a tremendous impact that now it's ISO as opposed to uh, CAN based because mm-hmm. like any change that we've had to make like with settings or anything like that, we've had to, there also had to be a uh, a coinciding field computer update. Right. right. So now we can't. There are some tweaks that, yeah, if we uh, we can add some enhancements with, say, a uh, new Viper 4 version or a new CR7 version. Um, but for the most part, everything is handled strictly within the uh, within RS1. Yeah, within the object pools. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yep. So updates can be made just a little bit faster and, right. uh, and feature enhancements can be made faster as well. So, yeah, it's exciting. I'll leave it. I'll, I'll ask just one last time. If there's anything else, Nick's putting up his hands. I think he wants to leave. He's done. Mm-hmm. Done. Yeah. Call it. All right. All right. Well, <laughs> and with that, well, thanks, guys. Thank you, Matt. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys.